Good morning, everyone. So good to see you this morning. Um, I am excited about today's topic and very grateful for the opportunity to teach on it. Something that uh, I'm going to um, piggyback off of what Pastor Tony was teaching on a few weeks ago when he talked about the seven mysteries of the gospel. Specifically today, we're going to hit something that's near and dear to my heart, Israel. Um, Now, topic of Israel. Uh, It is definitely an interesting topic. It can be a heavy topic. It can be a controversial topic. Uh, For me, it's something that's been on my heart for 25 years. Um, For those of you, a lot of you know, maybe some of you don't, my wife and I back in 2006, 2008 were missionaries to Israel. And at that time, we had our, our three, my three older boys who were just little guys. I think Ezra maybe ha- has a few of those memories, but for the most part, they don't remember much. But it was an amazing time, and God did, really, I, it was God working something in us. I know he used us when we were there, but Israel is a hard land to be a missionary in. That is just a fact. Um, but absolutely rewarding, learned so much, grew deeper with the Lord. And I want to share some of the things that, that I've come to know and understand. Now, I, when Pastor Tony brought up uh, these seven mysteries, and Danny, if we could pop that up on the screen, um, he just kind of gave us, and this was based off of a teaching or a series of teachings, I'm not entirely sure, from Stuart Greaves, and, and Tony uh, created a teaching out of it, more of just kind of like an introduction to this idea, which I know Tony wants to go in more. And I was excited. You can see the seven there. And I encourage you, if you have not listened to that message, please listen to that message. It was powerful. But it's this idea that God has had these amazing hidden mysteries from the beginning of the age. And as he's been unfolding his plan to his people, uh, now in the church age, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the work of Jesus, these mysteries are no longer necessarily mysteries. They are riches and treasures that we can dive into wholeheartedly. And I'm very excited at the seventh one, eternally chosen Israel. So I want to read from Rome. We're going to be mostly in Romans chapter 11, but we're going to go through a lot of scripture. Um, it's, it's unavoidable with this topic of Israel. It's all through the Bible, just as Jesus is the central thread through everything. Israel is prominent through all the scriptures, of course. And so there is so much to pull on. So my hope is this, that the, the note sheet you have, if you have a pen, that you jot things down. Um, I don't want to overwhelm you with a lot, but I really do want to cover a lot of ground. So I don't expect it to be comprehensive to you. Uh, what I expect or hope or encourage is that you go home and make it your own study. We're going to talk about why, why that should be, why Israel should be in every believer's study of the Word of God and in your relationship with the Lord and very much prominent in your prayer life as a prayer point. We're going to talk about that. Now, um, I'm going to read from Romans 11 to start us off with verse 25, which is the verse that Pastor Tony went to when he was uh, teaching on this originally, and it's the, the mystery part. And we're going to be bouncing all through Romans 11. Paul does just this incredible, uh, um, he he just is incredible at conveying these points on Israel in such 
a condensed way in chapter 11, and really chapter 9, chapter 10, um, very thorough. So I would say if you're looking for a starting place, that's your starting place. It's New Testament. It's a writing of Paul, um, and he, he quotes from Isaiah. He, he goes all over the place. So hit that for sure, but we're going to be back and forth in 11. We're going to start with verse 25 to set it up. Um, Romans eleven twenty five. 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That right there is packed, absolutely packed. There are so many pieces there that really um, we could spend forever doing that, and we're going to use that, we're going to go through it, and I'm going to set it up with three questions that I want us to think of as an introduction. Why did God choose Israel? Question two, if he chose Israel, if we, if we can all agree on that, what was his purpose? And then thirdly, is that purpose relevant today in the church age? And for some of us, for a lot of evangelicals, um, I think everyone would agree, yeah, Israel, we support Israel. There's probably a pro-Israel, more of a, of a nationalist kind of uh, support of Israel, which is good, you know, to support the nation of Israel uh, as they are politically, geographically, as they are in the Middle East, they are allies to the United States, uh, a lot of amazing things coming out of Israel technology-wise and all that, but I'm not here to talk about those points, I'm here to talk about the spiritual significance and how Israel ties into revival. So that has been obviously a huge topic lately. And the exciting part is Israel is all about that in a very powerful way. So my hope is that we really connect with that idea that as revival is promised to happen, prophesied to happen, as it begins to happen, and I believe it's, it's happening now. By the way, the, the youth, um, you guys are like, you're ripe for, for revival. You can tell, you can see it when you pray, when you move, when you walk around, we're seeing testimonies and things. You're a powder keg for revival. You really are. And so it's only a mat, it's a spark. It's moments, really. It's, it's, and, and grab hold of it. Really lay hold of, take that passion that you have and seize this opportunity to press into the Lord because times of refreshing are happening all over the globe. And it's going to continue to get stronger and stronger. We've seen waves, but there will be a crescendo of revival that absolutely covers the entire planet. Like waters over, over the seas, like the glory of the Lord over the earth before Jesus comes back. And we're, we're living, we're starting to see that. So that leads us to this idea of how important and central Israel is. And I want to start the beginning of Israel's journey, which of course is Abraham. So let's talk about, I think for, um, for believers, like I said, we can have, we, a lot of us I, I think would agree we're pro-Israel, support Israel. But have we really taken time to really think about that deeply? And I think maybe there's still some apprehension, resistance to that. And again, just like all things, especially in a church, when we see abuses of things, we start to create guards and put up walls. And we've seen a lot of abuse in this area, for sure. We've seen extremism. 
We've seen solely nationalism, where it's just about politically talking about support of Israel and overlooking everything they do in, in the way that they're running and operating as a government, in the way that they're functioning in the Middle East, just like the United States, right? None of us would walk away and say everything the United States does is perfect and above bar. We would be naive and we'd be ignorant to say that. It's not the case. So it is with uh, the national Israel that we know today, very much so. We have Palestinian friends that we got to know when we were there. And so we really got to see both worlds. We got to stay with them in Bethlehem for Christmas, Palestinian Christians, and see how hard it is for them in the midst of that. And they have different views, right? So there's many views. So my point is there are a lot of different things that maybe we've come to know and perceptions that we've developed over Israel because it is a hot topic, okay? There's hardly any middle ground with Israel. Or maybe it's just I don't know much about Israel, but I guarantee you, and I'll share a little bit of my story later on, I guarantee you there's some type of perception that you've developed about Israel in your life, especially being a believer. So let's, let's go back to the beginning, and, and I would challenge us with this. When we think of Israel, maybe we do know a little more. If so, do we see them just as God's vehicle, as some nation or whatever that God had set up solely for the, for the purpose of bringing about Jesus or the gospel, right? So I think there's sometimes that's right, that's accurate, but we can see Israel only through that lens, and we, we don't have the whole picture that God wants to give us concerning Israel. I would ask us this, do we look at Israel as an object of God's affection? And if we do, what does that look like? And I would tell you, the more we see that, the more we will understand God's affection for us. It will become very clear and that's what I hope to do. Let's go to, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, and again, you can just read. You don't feel like you have to flip through uh, all this. Um, take it home, study it, open it up. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So right from the start, we see it was love. Very clearly here, God did not pull this people to be a possession out of the nations for himself based on their strength, based on their military, based on their, their intellect, based on anything else, their numbers or whatever. He did it because he loved them. And if we think about what does that look like, he loved Abraham. He looked at Abraham. And that's good news for us because we say God is love. So that's what we would expect, but again, if we're looking through the lens that God's just using this people group so he can accomplish something, we're missing a very huge key here. God so loved the world, and that began right here. If we believe God loves the world, if we believe God loves his church, if we believe God loves every uh, individual believer in this room fully, intensely, 
passionately, eternally, then we must believe what's being said here. He loved Israel. Everything flows out of that truth that he loves Israel. So that's our foundation. And as we look at uh, some of the other scriptures here listed here, Psalm 148, verse 14, and he has lifted up a horn for his people. He exalted Israel in a victorious way. Praise for all his godly ones, for the sons of Israel, a people near to him. In other words, God was developing a relationship with these people. He was drawing near to them, okay? Not just so that the Ten Commandments can go into the world. He loved these people, and his presence was with them. He saw them as the apple of his eye. And as we look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 through 11, I want you to see this picture of where that comes from biblically, the apple of his eye. We say that, we've heard it, but in the Hebrew, it literally means little man, the little man in his eye, pupil. In other words, the proximity that that was represented in God's relationship to his people was so close, so near, that the reflection of Israel was in God's eye. Not only that, but the Lord says it would stay there. It would stay there. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil or apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. So we see this beautiful picture of the Lord grabbing Israel his treasured possession, possession, and developing this beautiful bond and relationship with his people. So he foreknew them, and it was filled with love, not just mission, not just um, kingdom purposes to be accomplished. Yes, 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 all of that, but we must not forget it was rooted in love. Now, so that's why. That's the big why. That's why they were chosen, a big part of it. What was their calling or purpose? Let's take a look at that. And we know very well in um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see what we know now as the Abrahamic covenant. Introduced to us, Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He was blessing Abraham. He was going to make Abraham a blessing, and through that process, all the families of the earth, would be blessed. Now we know Abraham 
to be a wealthy man, to have a lot of livestock, to have a lot of material possessions, to have a lot of family and extended family and servants and all of that. But if we are to think about him blessing all of the nations of the world, is that because he had a lot of chickens? I have a lot of chickens. And um, I, I don't necessarily look at the chickens and say, ah, oh, thank you, Abraham, for those chickens. So if we're talking about materialistically, none of us can really say, well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, Abraham set something in motion that today became some, you know, form of whatever way to bless us. But obviously the blessing there is deeper. Obviously the blessing is Jesus coming through the lineage but remember, it was built and based and founded on love and a promise. God promised Abraham. Right here we see it. It's a promise. It's an oath. And when we see Paul referring to it, and we see the prophets referring to it, they're always referring to it as the oath that God made to the forefathers. And the Lord reminds them, the oath that I made to your forefathers, a promise I made to the forefathers that I loved. A promise I made to my friend Abraham that I would bless the world through the beginning of that relationship with that man and it would be based in love and I would bring the man of love through that process being Jesus Christ to bless the world. It has to be founded this way. So the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant gives us purpose. Abraham's blessing we see is irrevocable. The promise of God irrevocable. And we see that also set up in, in Romans um, 11, verse 28, says this. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, being Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, I made a promise to Abraham, my beloved, the one I love, and that will never, ever, ever cease. I will uphold that promise. It's irrevocable. My calling for Abraham and for his people will be an eternal calling that cannot be taken away from them. It cannot be taken away by them. Because I am the one that made this promise and I will carry it out. He made this promise before Moses was given the commandments on Sinai. That's important. That's super important to understand when you're thinking of Israel and you're thinking how we tie into it. So the relationship was important. We talked about that. Um, let's read Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. I love this. In order that in Christ Jesus, now we're seeing the tie-in of the blessing, how Abraham and the promise given to him would be a blessing to the whole earth. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, the promise, the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, now listen, he's saying, I speak in terms of human relations even though it is only a man's covenant, not God's covenant, he's saying basically, hey, contracts and covenants that people carry on with one another, listen, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. In other words, you guys know how contracts work. You know how covenants work. Once it's done, that's it. You set it aside, boom. Our word is our bond. 
we carry out that covenant and we, we don't break away from it because that's the way covenants work. Paul's saying if it's that way in the natural with fallen people, how much more? So he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Super important, because a lot of times when we think about Israel, we think, well, they, they broke the commandments that Moses gave them on day one. And, and months back, I preached a message on that, talking about how they couldn't even keep those commandments on the first day they were given to them. They transgressed. Well, here, Paul is saying, but look, that's not the root of their relationship with God. The root of their relationship is a promise, and that promise cannot be broken. That covenant cannot be nullified 400-some years later by the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Hugely important if you're catching this. So let's talk about more of the, the relationship that God had with him. And I love this. We know that in, um, in Genesis, when God was getting ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's developing this relationship with Abraham, he comes to uh, tell Abraham the promise of Isaac. Remember, Sarah laughs, and we remember that whole story. And God was there with his messengers, and Abraham was there meeting with him. And God was about to leave, and, and they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, and God said, should we not tell Abraham what we're up to, what our plan is to bring judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because Abraham's going to become a mighty nation, and through him, all of the nations will be blessed. So in other words, I made a promise to this man. He's my friend. I love him. Shouldn't I include him in what I'm doing? That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. When did that happen? Before Abraham. But God says, I want this man to partner with me in what I'm about to do on the earth. And Abraham steps in to intercession. He takes an intercessory role and says, Lord, you are righteous. You're a God of justice. If you go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are righteous ones there, then the world will look at you and say, how can this be a, a just God? And the staggering thing is, Abraham talks him down from 50 or 100, I don't remember the number, all the way down to 10. And we know it was less than 10 in Sodom and Gomorrah that were righteous, because they were still obliterated. I just, I always wonder, when I, I was reading that as a, as when I first got saved as a 15-year-old, reading that, like, this is, this is such a bizarre thing to read, how Abraham's like, well, hey, God, if 50 are there, can you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And God's like, yes, if 50 are there, I will spare them. Okay, how about 40? And every time he says it, and I really related to this, because as a kid, my brother probably remembers, I apologized for everything. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. People were always saying, stop saying you're sorry. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Abraham's basically like, no, don't get angry. Don't get angry. I'm so sorry for even bothering you. But what if it's 30? And God's like, sure, 30. And he talks him down to 10. And God says, sure, if there's 10 righteous in that city, I will spare it. 
Obviously, there was not. But God allowed the ones that were righteous close to Abraham and his family to be delivered um, from Sodom and Gomorrah. Amazing story. But the point that I'm making is that's part of Israel's relationship and calling and purpose was to be an intercessory nation in the earth. It's said this way beautifully in Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. We've heard this. We've quoted it many times in, in, in direct relationship to the church. And to us, it's beautiful, but it was spoken to Israel originally. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. They were called to be a light. They were called to be an intercessory nation. They were called to be God's covenant to the world. Why would that be? Because God brought them in. He says, I watched over you. I held you by the hand. I, I brought you in close, so close that your very reflection would stay in my eye so that the nations would see this love relationship, but that the nations would also see, as Abraham, your father, said, I am a God of justice. If you transgress and if you turn your heart from me, then you will also receive the judgment of a furious, loving God, so that the nations can see that I am no God like they have ever known. I am an all-consuming God. And if you come into proximity with me and I give you my heart, and you don't give your heart back, you give your heart to something else, to some uh, foreign God, to some other lover, don't be surprised when you see the fury of a jealous God come after you. And I want the nations to see that. Because once they see it in you, Israel, then they will know the God of heaven is the God of the universe. Then when they see my son on the cross, it will begin to set in and make more sense of how much I love them. For God so loved the world. So it's very important that we see all of these pieces coming into place when we think about Israel's calling and purpose. But now let's get to the tough part that I think a lot of us struggle with when we think of Israel, and that's Israel's rejection. Romans 11.15 says it this way, I say then, Romans 11.11 actually, I'll back it up. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So this whole chapter is set up, and Daniel, if you'll go to verse one, it's set up when we think about rejection. I know, you know, it's, it's the way I just came to understand it, probably based on the teaching of pastors and others, but I thought God rejected Israel. Israel's rejection, right? It seemed to make sense. But it doesn't line up with what Paul is telling us at the very beginning. Verse 1, he says this, I say then God has not rejected his people. Has he? Very clear. You couldn't ask it to be more clear than that. May it never 
be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? We know it talks about how uh, they have killed your prophets, so on and so forth. And then God had kept a remnant. We know that part. Um, Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So even if the way, what he's saying, if God's way of dealing with Israel is anything else than grace, then it's not the way that God's dealing with his people. Because God deals with his people through grace. But we, we can have a perception that God deals with them through the law of Moses. But that's not what Paul's telling us here. He says this in verse 7, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Remember that word, hardened. It, it's going back to verse 25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Just as, just as it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And now verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, again, the word jealous, if I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What will their acceptance be but revival across the globe? They rejected Jesus. Jesus did not reject them. And this is made very clear to us when we look at, let's jump ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backtrack in a little bit, but I want to jump ahead and I want you to see this. Matthew, Daniel, if you could pull that up, chapter 23, verse 37 through 39. We know this very well. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is not Jesus that rejected Israel. It is not God that rejected Israel. It is Israel that rejected God, and therefore, their rejection is their own. Does that make sense? 
When we talk about Israel's rejection, we're talking about that's what they did. As much as we're talking about when we say their failure, that's their failure. When we say their transgression, it's their transgression. It's not God's transgression. It's not God's rejection. And that's all in the same context of what we're reading here. That's the verbiage that Paul is using here. So really important that we clarify God has not rejected Israel. Let's, let's talk about what happened in this rejection. And we can read that in Jeremiah 2, verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill, and this uses, this is, uses some very intense uh, um, language here. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say I am not defiled? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways, a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? This is the Lord speaking to the people he loves. All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. And this, unfortunately, is the case with Israel. When they were given the blessing of Abraham, the promise of Abraham, the gift of love that is Yeshua, and I use the Hebrew name for Jesus, the gift of love that is Yeshua given to the people. When that time came, majority of his chosen people rejected him. And when they did, God gave them over to their rejection and he scattered them. Look what it says, the uh, prophet Zechariah says. Chapter 7, verse 8 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Who hardened Israel's heart? They did. It says it right here. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen. You rejected me, turned away from me, now I am turned away from you. You brought this upon yourself. I'm not breaking my promise, you are breaking it. 
in the sense that they're walking away from the Lord. But God's promise remains steadfast, secure, and he has a plan, and he's in control, and he's not sitting up there saying, what do I do now? Did he know? Yes, he knew. And he has a plan, and it's all coming together. And it will, the pinnacle will be world revival. It will. And Israel is really at the heart of it. It really is, guys. We can't separate Israel out. We're learning that right here, right now. So, verse, so he said, so they called, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, but I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolate behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. They rejected the Lord. So that's their rejection, clearly shown to us through the prophets, clearly shown to us through Paul. Now let's talk about replacement theology. If you haven't ever heard this term, it just basically means that as Christians throughout the church age, now that we live in the church age, we have, some of us have maybe just done it from teaching we never really understood, but we have replaced Israel throughout the Bible and inserted ourselves in those places, in those promises, in those scriptures. Now, that's a beautiful thing. We all have to admit, how many times have we looked at a scripture and we see it in context to Israel but we say, well, this is how the Lord feels towards me, right? That's beautiful. That's healthy. Where it becomes unhealthy is when we say, well, Israel's gone. They're toast. God doesn't want anything to do with them. It's the church, the church now. We replace them. It's not about Israel anymore. That's a lie. That is a lie from hell, and that is a lie that has caused a lot of problems in, our, in the history of our planet Namely, anti-Semitism. You may think that's just a racial um, prejudice issue. It's more than that. It is Satan himself masquerading as theology, pointing his finger in the eye of God, the pupil of God, and saying, God doesn't love the world. Look at Israel. It doesn't work what God does. They're trying to take over the world. They're plotting. They're scheming. And we develop these perceptions about God's people that are unhealthy, and we do it in the church. When I was growing up, I grew up in a non-religious home, but my dad put us in Catholic school, and I've shared a lot of these stories with you. And I, ha I remember, when I think of what God started, why the Lord started stirring my heart, or how he started stirring my heart for Israel, it goes way back to being 10 years old, 1987, and on the news, seeing the Intifada, which if you don't know what that was, that was an uprising in Israel by mostly uh, the Palestinian, the Israeli territories, Palestinians who uh, started protests that turned very violent, using stones, Molotov cocktails, people were dying, Israel came in with soldiers and troops, and pretty much, you know, put it out. But I remember seeing on the news, not knowing much about this at all, not really, even though I was, a, I was an altar boy, I was a Catholic, I had participated in the Stations of the Cross, and what I remember was this idea that, well, it's the Jews that killed Jesus. I'm not saying anyone said that to me, but as an eight-year-old, that's what I walked away with. The Jews killed Jesus, God's done with them. And that was having no theology. 
That was just a perception in a little eight-year-old. So when I saw them on TV, and I saw all of that happening in Israel, I said, I never want to go to that place. Never in a million years, I'm not going there at age 10. I said that. It looked crazy. I didn't want anything to do with that. I got saved at 15, and I went to as many prayer meetings, Bible studies as I could. Well, 16 years old, I learned of an intercessory prayer meeting. What is that? I thought they were just prayer meetings. What's intercessory? I didn't know what that was. I go to this intercessory prayer meeting, and I see horns. Looks like they ripped them off some animal. I see flags that aren't United States flags. I see people draped in these coverings with all this, you know, tassels and ornate design. And the music that's going, these people are hot for the Lord, praying, interceding. And it, they're singing about Israel. In, in my 16-year-old mind, I'm saying, what are we doing here? We're obviously missing it. We're, we're Christians. We're supposed to be doing intercessory prayer. We're supposed to be praying the scriptures, right? What are you guys doing? And they were doing this Israel thing. I was like, what is this? It's so bizarre. But I fell in love with it. And pretty soon, it didn't take long. I was leading worship. Pretty soon, I was making an order for my very own shofar. Sitting at home, you remember that? Sitting at home in the room like, like trying, so hard. To, and it was a little one. And those are the worst. If you're trying to learn how to do a shofar, please get like the five foot ones. Those are easier to blow, believe it or not. Anyways, and I had the shawl and all of it. I just fell in love. And I'm just kind of like pinnacles, ups and downs. Then I went to International House of Prayer and met people like Stuart Greaves and met people like Jim Mayer. And that passion that was developing for Israel, it, um, it got stronger. It became a fire. And I remember I was leading, helping to co-lead the internship. And there was this beautiful young lady after a, a time a meeting where I had taught on Israel. And she came up to me, blonde, blue-eyed. Her, her eyes were as blue as the upper atmosphere of earth when you see that blue. <laughs> and she had, she had this Star of David necklace on. And she said, so, so you have a heart for Israel too? And I was like, if I didn't before, trust me, I have, I truly have a heart for Israel. <laughs> and then I was asked by Stuart Greaves to do an intercessory uh, worship set for two hours on Wednesday nights. And he said, build a team. And I say, well, I, I know who my keyboard player is going to be. <laughs> So I went to Laura Moss and asked her, and she was excited. The rest is history, but fast forward, where we were youth pastors at a church in Satellite Beach in 2005, and the two of us could not escape this feeling for Israel, this passion for Israel. And all of a sudden, we realized we're supposed to go there. We had two children, babies. And we prayed, and we got church leadership around us, and we had Tony and Rachel as part of that. And they blessed us. They said, go. And we went to Israel during a crazy time. It was the second Lebanon war when we went there. They were raining down rockets from up north in Lebanon. 
And Laura and I went there, fell in love with the place. Before that, a year before that, at International House of Prayer, I went to Israel for the very first time on a trip with a staff member at the time. She was actually making Aliyah. In other words, she was immigrating to, because she was Jewish. She was a passionate believer of Jesus, of Yeshua, but she was actually moving there. And I went there for the first time and fell in love with the place, with the people. All of that you've been told when you go there is true. When you walk the land and you have this sense of God has touched this place. God has kissed this place. It is very true. Why? Because God so loved the world. And that was the starting point. Israel is so important. So let's not throw Israel to the side. Why would we do that? That's not the heart of God to reject and to throw and cast someone aside, right? Like the prodigal. He embraces he forgives, he establishes, he raises up. He gives chances upon chances upon chances upon chances. Our God is a loving, patient, merciful, kind-hearted God who will move heaven and earth to show his love to the object of his affection. Israel is meant to be part of the revival. What you are seeing now, what you and I are seeing right now, it's not, we can look and say, well, there's been waves of it. You guys experienced that in the 90s. Powerful wave of God's presence. But do you understand that what's coming won't just be a wave anymore? When it hits us, it will stay. And what we are seeing, I believe, is the beginnings of that. We may see more waves. But I believe in our lifetime, we are going to see sustained impact of the glory of God. Why? It has to happen because, remember Paul said, making his fellow brethren jealous. What's going to make Israel jealous? The church has been doing stuff for 2,000 years. Is Israel jealous of the church? We like got a pope. We got a capital. We tried to do the whole same thing. We had our Moses. We had our Jerusalem. And Israel's just looking at like, guys, we did this way before you guys even thought of it. Like, this means nothing to us. And then to make matters worse, we get angry and say, well, you guys are the ones that killed Jesus and come after him. We've got bloody history that thankfully now, that's changing. All of that's changing. Those wounds are being healed. But this is where we come into play. We are the ones that ignite Israel in revival by our preaching, maybe a little, by our big ministries, I don't know, maybe they see that stuff, you know what it is, it's the presence of the living God that they remember consciously, subconsciously in their DNA, in their culture, the glory cloud of God over a Gentile people called the church. When the presence of God breaks out over the nations in ways that look biblical, that's when something changes. That's when a people rejected and thrown off to the side, rejected by their own doing, thrown off to the side, troubled, 
fearful, anxious because of the nations and the tumult around them, when they see that and they see the presence, that's when something comes alive in their heart, something that was dead. It looks like life from the dead. Ezekiel saw it this way in verse 37, I'm sorry, chapter 37, verse 1 through 3, we know this very well. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry, dry bones. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves. My people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Then you will know the promise I made to your father Abraham I take very seriously, and I will bring that promise to fruition. And it looks like you being revived. It looks like you coming to life. But I would say this. Why the picture of an army? Is Israel going to march across the globe, become colonial empire, and take over the other nations? Is it an army strictly for defense because they have hostile neighbors? This is all being done by the Spirit of the Lord. What is that army? It is an end-time revival army. Why would they need to be assembled like troops other than to be the army of the Lord Part of the revival spreading across the globe and bringing the gospel, as Paul said, being a good soldier. Bringing the gospel to the nations. There is an idea in the church when we talk about eschatology that, yeah, Israel's going to be saved. Brother, I hear you. I don't have any issues with that. Israel's going to be saved like a few minutes before Jesus comes back and we're all going up together. It's good. You can stop right now. You've gone long enough. I'm joking, but you understand what I'm saying. There's this idea that Israel gets saved right before Jesus comes back. That is not scriptural. God raises up an army to be part of the revival, and the revival is kindled and lit by us. Once revival starts to spread across the colleges, the youth groups, the cities, the churches, once we stop and pursue God with wholehearted 
fervency and passion. And we set everything else aside because this is what we want, because we want Jesus, Yeshua, to return because great darkness has covered the earth and we're, we, we don't want to be part of darkness anymore. We want the light to arise in our midst, the bright morning star. When we get to that place and the presence of God stays sustained so that our meetings unravel and kids hang around and showboating dissolves in the presence of the Lord and high-performance-based ministry takes a back seat because the little, you know, Avners and Jacksons and Ellie's and Sadie's get on their face and weep before the Lord, then Israel will look at that and say, we want that. And Jesus said, when that happens, you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And guess what? Jesus is not coming back until his people do that. He said that. That's solid scripture. Did you know that? So the idea that Israel is a side issue is not biblical. Jesus will not come back until they are saved. And Paul says it this way, that all Israel would be saved. Romans 11, verse 26. Go back to the mystery part we were talking about. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy, talking to us, the church, you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience. You know that? I'm not saying that. Paul's saying that. Read that. Verse 30. We have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, to me, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. For God so loved the world. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This is the beautiful plan of God from the very beginning. And we are part of it. And this is the mystery of Israel. And we can know this now. We can study. We can dive in. Listen to the way he says it in, in verse uh, 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you 
who supports the root, but the root supports you. In other words, we need to be grateful for Israel. We are here because of Israel. No Israel, no church. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And that harkens back to Jeremiah chapter 2 we just read. He called them a foreign vine. They were acting like a foreign vine, but they're not a foreign vine. They are connected to the vine. Act like you're connected to the vine is what the Lord is saying to them. And this is happening in our day and age. So I'll leave you with this to think about. Times of refreshing are coming. Peter mentions this, if you remember, in Acts. And Danny, feel free to put that up. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but he's telling them in his second sermon, after Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter says in Acts 3, verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order, he's talking to the Jews, in order that times of refreshing may come from what? The presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So when you see revival in times of refreshing and when Israel jumps on board and is part of that, the presence of the Lord, then Jesus will come. We ought to be praying for Israel to be awakened and for revival to come not just to us, but to Israel. If we don't spend some time praying about it, folks, we're missing our calling as the church. Why? The church is meant to make them jealous. It needs to be a prayer point, not just some meeting that you conference you attend somewhere in the, the U.S. somewhere. It needs to be in our life, functioning in some way, praying for this, because we all want Jesus to come back. We all want revival. So times of refreshing. Listen, he says, verse 21, so the Christ... Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven, has, who heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom, to him, you shall give heed to everything he says, that being Jesus, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people." And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Peter saying, guys, this is very clear. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant. For you first, Israel, 
God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That day is happening now. Revival is part of that. And if you remember the story of Balaam being asked by King Balak, Balak, there's different ways to say it. Anyways, let's not worry about that. But by that king to curse the people of Israel, he brought them up to mountaintops, different mountain uh, points, and it was all about distance. If you study it geographically, he, would bring them, he brought them to the first one, which was pretty far removed from the camp of Israel. But what was in the camp of Israel? What do we know as a fact would be in the camp of Israel? You probably could see from a very long way. The Lord. Did someone say the Lord? Pillar. Yeah, right? The pillar, the cloud uh, by day, the fire by night, the ark, the presence of the Lord. And Balaam says this. Every time he tries to prophesy against Israel, uh, the king was saying, curse them for us, curse them. And he says, I'll try, but it really depends on what God wants to do. And God would speak something of blessing. But in each one of those, he says, I saw a vision of the Almighty over the beautiful tents of Israel. The presence of God, he saw the presence of God over Israel. And as he'd leave that mountain, and the king would get really upset with him and say, well, let me bring you closer because you're clearly not seeing what I'm seeing. And they'd go to the next mountaintop, and Balaam's like, nope, I'm seeing it even more clearly now. It's definitely the presence of the Lord. And they get closer, and the same thing. So Israel will look out from their mountaintop, and they will look at the cloud of God in our camp. And they will say, we're so angry with these people, but we can't curse them. All we can do is say, this is our God, the God of Israel. Look at his love for the nations. If he loves them, he'll take us back. And they will look at the one whom they have pierced. And they will weep. Because they will see him in his beauty. And their eyes will finally be opened. And their hearts will be softened. So when we talk about revival, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with this. If I could have the worship team come up now. When we talk about revival, this has to be part of it. Why wouldn't we want it to be part of it? Why would we want anything different? Because if God would do that, then he can set us all free. If he would show that kind of grace and compassion and mercy towards a rebellious, disobedient, obstinate, hard-hearted, idolatrous people, then surely... God will forgive me. Surely God will show mercy towards me. Surely God will show mercy towards you. Surely that prodigal loved one you have, they're coming home. Surely the healing that you need in your back, in your heart, the cancer you're battling, surely the God of Israel, when he's in the camp, he'll take care of all that. Do you agree? Let's stand up. God of Israel, we call on your name. Yeshua, Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We align ourselves with your purposes and your plan for world redemption, and we know that Israel is foundational. 
Lord, I ask right now, whatever it looks like for my brothers and sisters, they don't have to all buy shofars, praise God. They don't need to start wearing tassels, praise God. But Lord, something, there's a seed. There's something going on, something that you're stirring, because it's going to take all of us to ignite that kind of jealousy that sparks revival in Israel. And it's going to take us being in the presence of God, nothing less will do. None of our programs or our agendas or our exposition on theological points, none of that is going to bring about the kind of reaction that the Bible tells us when Paul says all Israel will be saved, as much as the presence of the Lord. Peter said it, times are refreshing in the presence of the Lord. That is what Israel needs. So we, on behalf of Israel, we lift up our voice and we say, Lord, bring revival to Israel. You're starting to right now. More men and women are calling on the name of Yeshua in that land than ever before. Lord, we ask for more right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would birth and release something to all of us here in whatever capacity that may look like. Whether a fervent, fiery calling that puts us into intercessory prayer mode. Whether it's evangelizing in love Jewish brothers and sisters who don't know Yeshua who are hopeless without Jesus the only way truth and life their true Messiah whether it's giving us a passion for Israel whatever way that may look I just ask that you release it right now raise your hand if you want a greater impartation of God's heart for Israel and I hope that's all of us Raise your hands right now. Lord, move across this room right now and birth something supernatural for the people of Israel, for your chosen nation, Israel. Birth something, Lord, that's supernatural, that's not man-made, that's not caught up in politics or nationalism, but something that's near and dear to your heart, to the apple of your eye, Lord. Birth that in all of us right now. And Lord, I'm asking you right now for revival. I love what you're doing to our young people. They are the firebrands. And I ask that you would ignite them with a greater passion and a greater fire right now. Let's pray for that. If you're by some of these young people, put your hands on them. And let's move into worship and start to sing. But as we're singing and worshiping, please begin to pray and intercede for the young ones. And for us too, we all want it. We all want to be used. We thank you, Lord. Come in power.